Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book One Predestination and Other Games of Chance A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net Featuring the vocal talents of Aaron K. Balabanian Brian Levy and Kitty McKeon with original music by Danny Shade. This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now, Episode 4. Hello, this is Zachary Moore from Evolution 101 and the Apologia Podcasts. You're listening to Antithesis, Book 1, and this is the story so far. Joss Kyle and Allie Hartman only met a day ago, but already their lives are set on a collision course. Joss is a former cabinet member who's defecting to the outer colonies, and Allie is the bounty hunter who's been hired to catch him if possible and kill him if necessary. Joss's first encounter with Allie happened the previous evening while she was posing as Alex Hart, a card sharp with an excellent reputation created specifically for the purposes of luring Joss in as he tried to escape. When Joss cheated in order to get the money he needed for his ticket to Mars, his conscience got the better of him, and he spent the better part of the morning seeking a rematch, the chance to win honestly against one of the best players he's ever faced. Securing an appointment to play cards with Alex Hart, Joss is tipped off by Cassie Orenthal, a spacer with her own ideas about how Joss should get off the station. She tells him that Allie has been posing as Alex, and that she and her husband Jim are some of the best hired guns in the business. She offers him a way out, if he cares to take it. They're interrupted before he can agree, and she leaves him with her invitation hanging in the air between them. Joss, having only minutes to make his appointment with Alex Hart, and unsure whether to trust a complete stranger, hurries to Auntie N, making sure his weapon is within easy reach. Where is it? Where the fucking hell is it? Jim was in the second bedroom back at the apartment, tearing through the files as fast as he could without missing anything. Damn it, no time left. He hoped furiously he didn't miss anything. Professional history? No. Marital history? Depressing. No. Where the fuck is it? Somewhere in here there had to be a scar map or a retinal scan or something. Taste? No, we already know those. He plays poker. He likes more women than his wife would tolerate. What was that damn thing? You'd think in this whole mess of... Finally... Sandwiched between a paper detailing his intestinal problems and another one with the results of a recent IQ test. Stuck with a bit of jam dripped from a forgotten lunch. The face? Mm. Similar, but not the same. He either used stage makeup or he'd had some minor plastic surgery. The puggish nose had been straightened. The hair was filled in a bit. Could be a rug, though, if not cosmetic surgery. The brow was lighter and the deep circles under the eyes were less pronounced now. This wasn't the same guy. It was his brother. But if they nabbed him and he was the wrong guy, they would lose their license. No time to worry about that now. Jim checked the charge in his gun again and grabbed a retinal scanner the size of a pocket camera. If the weasel had burned his fingerprints off, they'd need it for a positive ID before they could turn him over to the embassy. Then they could get off this bloody station. Allie couldn't concentrate on her game. There hadn't been enough time to apply the beard carefully. The scar wasn't quite right. She knew she'd be made. Not bright, Allie. Not bright. 
sitting at a table in a makeshift costume with a potential fugitive known for his ruthlessness. A single hand of seven-card stud, nothing wild. Four cards were on the table, neither player was showing anything substantial. Her opponent looked like a hunted cat, but he wasn't yet showing claws. Fifth card. She'd had no time to go through the little rituals that allowed her to slip into character. Remembering the right voice was even proving tricky. The gravelly, smoky edge kept running away when her throat constricted with tension. She was sweating. The sweat was dissolving the beard's adhesive. He can't be missing this. He's seeing right through me. She roped off the corner of her mind that was praying the rosary and interrupting itself with requests for Jim's sudden and violent death for putting her in this situation. It was a poker game. That meant no hands below the table. Damn it. No hands below the table. No way to reach her gun. Sixth card. She had a pair of jacks showing. He was showing a pair of threes. Another thousand went into the pot on each side. The stakes had taken control of the game, running themselves higher than either one of them wanted. She saw sweat flowing in rivulets from under the brim of his hat. Desperation poured off him like so much cheap cologne. The desperation of a cornered ocelot. Allie shifted her weight so that her left leg was cocked under her, ready to launch her out of the chair. She held her cards in her left and dropped her right hand to the edge of the table near the opening in her jacket. If he moved, she'd draw on him before he could stand. His eyes were darting between the cards, the pot, her, the door. Quick, erratic. Something had him rattled. Good. No cool, calculating professional. This man didn't have what it took to palm a card. Not today. He was panicked. He wiggled slightly, almost imperceptibly. Tapping his foot under the table, he was ready to jump out of his seat and run at the slightest flick of a wrist from her. He expected her to pull a gun. A twitching nose, his fingers came up to brush away whatever had been tickling him and his sleeve slid back, revealing a faded purple scar on the back of his wrist. Allie's brain flashed. She started mentally paging through the files on Briggs. Childhood injury, right wrist, caught in a bolt press in his grandfather's workshop. It's him. She was sure enough to take him down, but she wanted backup. Gotta keep him in the game. There was a redhead in a ship suit a few tables away keeping an eye on them. Is she watching me or him? Whether his ally or another contractor, she'd be a problem if Allie drew on Briggs. Could she keep him in the game long enough for Jim to get here? She bit him up in small increments like he'd done to her yesterday. Draw the game out. Maybe Jim would get here. Final card. Face down. The redhead started talking into a wrist link. Was she his getaway, or was she calling backup? Damn! Damn it all the hell, I'm gonna lose him! And her whole card was worthless. A pair of jacks against whatever he had. If he had another three or one more pair, she was out 4,000 credits. If she lost... She lost the bounty. She was out of time. She couldn't keep him around for a rematch unless she beat him. The redhead stood and walked out, which meant whoever she was calling up would be coming in here any second. Allie took a breath and looked Briggs in the eyes. This was the man who had cut the fingers off a CIA agent in Buenos Aires. But he was not a common thug. He was experienced at extracting information. He knew how to survive. And in 30 seconds, she was going to be in his way. He was calculating, measured. He did not do unnecessary things, which is why he'd been impossible to catch. He never used violence on emotion. He was an analyst. He used terror like a surgeon with a scalpel, utterly clinically cold and capable of whatever was necessary. This was no hood she had cornered. She was a bobcat going up against a wolverine. She wished she had a drink. It was getting harder to keep her hands steady. Jim, where in the name of God's asshole are you? It was his turn to raise. 
Call. Briggs met the pot and turned over his whole card. Three of hearts. He smiled like a self-satisfied undertaker. Jim slid his head around the corner from the lobby. Allie caught the motion, signaling him with the crook of her little finger to hang back. Now, at least, there was a chance. She flicked her eyes back to Briggs, no longer certain of her own defeat. He met her gaze with feverish defiance and scooped two-thirds of the pot into his hat and poured the winnings into his left coat pocket. And that's where his gun is, the right coat pocket. He'd won all the weight well away from where he'd be drawing his weapon. He replaced the hat on his head. I owe you an apology. I played cricket with you last night. I'm sorry. But then, you're not playing completely straight with me, are you, Mrs. Hartman? Oh, shit. He'd made her. He took advantage of her moment of shock, stood up and drew his weapon. A projectile looked like a large caliber SIG. What's left over should cover last night's pot, plus a little to make up for the humiliation. He tipped his hat and dashed towards the door at a flat run. Jim ran for him, lunged, but Briggs was quicker and slid out of the tackle and threw Jim sideways into a booth as he cleared the last bank of tables. Jim landed with a sickening crunch of broken bones. Allie jumped up, gun in hand, and fired a warning shot over Briggs' shoulder. Down on the ground now, Briggs. You're worth just as much to me dead, so move. Briggs halted mid-stride and straightened his jacket, then slowly stretched his hands out to his sides. His gun wasn't in his fist. He stood still, letting her approach. Then he turned around slowly until he was facing her. The chase was over. She'd won. The adrenaline and euphoria were electric all over her skin. You're good. Best I've seen. He doesn't think he's done yet. The glint in his eye wasn't that of a beaten man. I would have liked to know you another time, Mrs. Hartman, but I really must go now. Faster than she could react, Briggs swung his left hand out towards her, letting fly a handful of titanium poker chips at her face. She didn't have time to duck. As she flinched, one caught her in her left <gasps> eye, and the world went white. She heard gunfire and felt the glass top table to her right explode in a hail of shrapnel. She howled in pain. As the glass splinters caught in her leather jacket ripped into the flesh of her right arm when she hit the ground, some part of her mind registered that Briggs was carrying explosive ammunition. She didn't have time to return fire. By the time she blinked the pain away and managed to raise her head, Briggs was gone. She felt a soft touch on her undamaged arm. Jim handed her a pouch with her winnings in it, then drew his gun. She pulled herself up on the chair and took stock. His left arm dangled limply at his side. Broken. Brilliant, Allie. Fucking brilliant. She reached into the pouch and tossed a few hundred credits and chips onto the end of the bar and shouted an apology to the bartender. Then she turned and stumbled blindly out of the restaurant. Jim was three <gasps> steps behind her. Which way did he go? Jim moved past her to take the lead, holding his gun close to his body and out of public view and cradling his broken left as best he could. Right, toward the docking area. Allie was back in her element now. I'll stay on this side. Keep your eyes peeled for a red-headed spacer. She was watching him. Left a few oh, minutes fuck. ago. <clears throat> Jim picked up the pace and didn't move to his side of the street. I saw her with him. Shit, she's grabbed him. They both broke into a run. Jim's eyes were working almost as fast as his feet, scanning faces as he rushed past them, probably bruising the few he bumped into. He bit back the pain and kept his arm tucked securely against his body, protecting it as much as he could. Who could she be? A Persian agent? A mercenary? He only knew of one female merc that came through here with any frequency, and she was as slippery as they came. They said she worked for the Green Lady. Jim didn't believe the mythical underworld boss existed, but that didn't change the fact that no man that had ever come through his bar 
bore her anything but a grudge. If Cassie Orenthal had her hooks in him, they'd never see him again. Wait, wait, wait. He grabbed Allie's good arm and pulled her to a stop in front of a terminal. I think I know who she is. His fingers flew through the public docking lists. Where was she? Docking information. Ship's master, Cassie Orenthal. There, docking port 13. How appropriate. Just requested clearance to leave. Engine's not yet powered up. We've got maybe ten minutes until she's clear of her moorings if we're lucky. Run! They ran together, still scanning the crowd. They ran until the oxygen burned their lungs, passing port 7, 9, 11, 13. It just had to be 13. The airlock was closed. Through the window, they could see Orenthal's ship, Kyrie, retreating from the moorings like an awakening leviathan. The quarry was gone. The contract was blown. It had all been a waste. Jim and Ellie stood helpless as their quarry slipped away into the black. There wasn't any way to chase them. Ships registered in the colonies weren't required to file a flight plan. Even if they had been, there was no reason to expect a mercenary to follow it. Jim laid his good hand on Allie's shoulder. The job was over. They were hired guns, private security. They already had a world of trouble coming down on them for discharging their weapons in public. They'd be lucky to get deported. They had no authority to commandeer a ship and no leverage to use. They were on a deniability basis with the senator. They did not exist as federal employees. They were on their own. He snaked his arm around her and pulled her close to him, looking through the porthole at their shared defeat. Allie opened the door to their flat. Jim followed her in, walking like a man straight from Torquemada's hobby room. She hated seeing him beaten. She couldn't bear to look at him. Not when she'd done this to him. He'd wanted to get back to California now for over a year. And now they couldn't go back. He knew it. And she knew it. She'd cost him the green hills of his home soil. And he didn't have it left in him to keep up the pretense. His posture was pure resignation. He was so beaten he couldn't even get angry at her. She hated him for that. Honey, I'm gonna go get a Coke. Want one? He was offering her a drink. She wanted to slap him for his fucking nerve, but all she could do was shake her head numbly. No. No, I'm fine. The terminal on the living room wall was blinking. Incoming message. Jim went into the kitchen to grab his drink while Allie doffed her coat and ripped off her makeup for the last time and called for the messages. An email appeared on the screen. It read, Mr. and Mrs. Hartman, In three years, no one got closer to me than the two of you did. Your setup was perfect. If I hadn't had help, you'd have me by now. My compliments to you both. You're a formidable team. The best I've ever seen. Alas, I value my life more than your bounty, so I must bid you adieu. I do hope we meet again under more favorable circumstances, as I'd much appreciate another rematch with you, Alyssa. 
Such a match deserves a proper battlefield and all the time it requires. Do not despair. Do not complain. I won this round, perhaps by chance, for the cards were all in your capable hands. I bluffed you once again. A part of me does regret it. But let's face it, Alyssa. You never did play with wild cards. But we will meet again. After all, you've allowed a mark to escape beyond where you can track him. Cassie has kindly seen to it that your Senator Shelley knows all about it. I imagine he'll be sending someone after you soon. Happy hunting. Joss Kyle, a.k.a. Reuben Briggs. You've been listening to Episode 4 of Antithesis, Book 1, Predestination and Other Games of Chance. Written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Original music for Antithesis written by Danny Shade and is used here with permission. This episode starred Aaron Balabanian as Allie, Brian Levy as Jim, and Kitty McKeon as the Spaceport announcer. Some sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds copyright 2008, Kitty McKeon, and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook was recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. The book is copyright 1997 and 2008, J. Daniel Sawyer, and the recording is copyright 2008, Artistic Whispers Productions. This recording is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.0 license, and all other rights are reserved to the author. And that's the end of episode four, and incidentally, the end of part one of the book. Predestination is divided into four parts, each covering a distinct part of the story arc. What happens in part two? Well, you're going to have to tune in next week and find out. At the beginning of all this, I told you you'd be hooked in four. Hopefully I've succeeded, because the ride only gets wilder from here. I hope you're on board for the rest. Remember, too, you can email me at dan at jdsawyer.net, and you can leave feedback on the blog at www.jdsawyer.net, or on the Antithesis line at 206-350-2340. Questions, attaboys, criticisms, and death threats are all welcome, so long as you don't intend to, you know, follow through on the death threats. Today's episode was a short one, partly because of the chapter break, and partly because I've got some listener feedback piling up here. This one's about a week out of date, but Lunar Shadow posted on the blog, I'm really excited to find out if Joss gives into his conscience or if he'll bite the bullet and just hop on the transport. The development in the intro of the players is leaving no stone unturned, and that's great. You really get a sense of who they are. Joss's backstory is rather interesting, and I can't wait till we meet Mondu and see where he falls into place. Keep them coming. For those of you who haven't listened to The Man in the Rain, you should. But Mondu is the main character in The Man in the Rain, and he shows up a little later on and plays a pivotal role in Predestination. A little later on in the book. But yeah, he is a fun character, and thank you very much, Lunar Shadow, for the comments. You've been our most active commenter so far. Please keep them coming. It's great to hear from you, but I also want to hear from everybody else. We've got listeners now in Pakistan, as well as a second listener in Israel, a second listener in Australia, a second listener in Canada, and now we've got someone from Poland. You guys are coming in from everywhere, which is great. Please keep spreading the word, telling your friends, and please call in. The feedback is wonderful. I love hearing from you guys. I like knowing how the story is, uh, how the story is sitting with you. Now, of course, um, two days ago, I actually got a note from a guy by the name of David Bradley who emailed me. He said, 
Hi, Dan. I'm really enjoying Predestination and Other Games of Chance, and I'm a listener to the Apologia podcast, and I really like your contributions to the discussions there. It's nice having a very knowledgeable, self-confident atheist there to press points further than some others would. And from there, I heard about your Sculpting God podcast series, which has been a delight, and I'm listening to Predestination and Other Games of Chance. The plot has been slow-moving, but I get the sense that that's going to be changing. Besides, it's early in the novel. It's great that you're using the audio drama style similar to the Variant Frequencies podcast in Sculpting God, rather than the straight reading like Escape Pod and J.C. Hutchins. I imagine it's a lot more work, but it provides a more immersive listening experience. What prompted me to write was something I noticed while listening to Episode 3 of Predestination yesterday. It seemed very familiar. A real sense of deja vu. So today I compared it to Episode 2, and I noticed that the beginning of the story in Episode 3 is identical to the end of the story in Episode 2. I assume that wasn't intentional and might be something you'd want brought to your attention if you haven't noticed already. Keep up the good work. I look forward to the next episode. David. Well, first of all, yeah, you caught it. When I was recording episode two, I printed out too many pages, and I just recorded all of them, edited all of them, cut them, mixed them, and then threw them onto the feed. And it was only later, like two or three days later, that I realized that I had just sent half of episode three along with episode two. I considered letting it sit for a while, and then I looked through my episode breakout, and I realized I couldn't get away with it, because changing where I've cut the episodes would screw up the next ten episodes. It would screw up all the cliffhangers that the episodes end on. And yeah, they all end on cliffhangers, or semi-cliffhangers. Lucky you guys. So what I did is I um, very quietly, sneakily tried to fix it by cutting it out in episode two, reposting episode two to feed, replacing the original file, and hoping that no one had caught it yet. But evidently some of you had, and I, I mean, I'm assuming, I'm assuming David's not the only one who saw this. And um, so when I went to record episode three, I tried reusing that, but I, I wasn't very happy with my performance. Um, in those because I had recorded that when I was tired. So I went ahead and re-recorded the first bit of episode three and um, I was a lot more happy with it. It also gave me a chance to have Danny Shade compose some music for the space elevator scene, which I thought was, uh, was really cool. Danny, if you're listening, I love this music, man. It fucking rocks. Um, and so, yeah, thank you very much for the email, David, and for the wonderful compliments on Apologia and on Sculpting God and on Predestination. I couldn't be more tickled. Producing it this way does take a lot of time. Uh, I'm still trying to get ahead. I've got a lot of it recorded already, but editing it, I'm still doing it week by week, and I need to get ahead of it because I've got a few big projects coming up. So, um, <laughs> yeah, God, it takes a lot of time, but this new this new control surface is making it a lot easier um but basically i decided to do it this way because i get so fucking sick of the sound of my own voice and i can't do women's voices for shit and there are one two three there's at least five really important female characters in this book and i just couldn't see getting away with what sigler gets away with when he talks like this and it's supposed to be a convincing strong woman Sigler somehow pulls it off. I have no idea how. I bet the guy, he just does not have a girly voice at all. Well, I certainly don't. I'm The best I can do is Bridget, who you might have heard in the Sculpting God promo, and I can't do her without the help of a pitch shifter. I'm, I can talk a bit like this, but then I need a pitch shifter to get me up in the normal range for a 50-year-old prissy British housewife. So I pretty much don't even bother. So that's it for listener feedback this week. 
I'm happy to report that the new control surface I talked about at length last week is here, and it works like a dream. I liked it so much I sold an article to Linux Journal this week reviewing the thing, so you'll be able to read my in-depth opinion on it in just a few months here when the issue goes to press. Now, a couple of episodes ago, I dangled one of three threads that came together to make up this story, and I promised more later. So here's thread number two. In high school, I loved Deep Space Nine, and particularly loved the way they used the bar as the main social center. Growing up in a pretty conservative evangelical household, I didn't have a lot of experience with bars as a phenomenon. But ever since reading The Hobbit in third grade, I've been in love with the concept of a neighborhood tavern. A love that's only deepened since I passed the legal drinking age and have been able to haunt them from time to time. At the time, though, I just found the idea magical. It was like a coffee house with dartboards and alcohol and carousing, so naturally I wanted to be able to frequent one in my mind. And I started sketching out the idea for a story in a notebook that I still have in my room to this day. The original notion was to tell the story of two space stations, Sidon and Nineveh, in terms of the shady dealings that went on in two bars, the one on Sidon you've already met, the Port of Call. The one on Nineveh, well, you get to sit down and have a drink in that one pretty soon. But it was during this time that I purchased my videotape copy of The Hunt for Red October and watched the scenes with the Russian ambassador over and over and over like you can only do when you're 13. He had a certain smarmy, ingratiating quality that appealed to me. Obviously a duplicitous, conniving bastard, and yet at the same time there was something about him that was deadly earnest. At the tender age of 13, I couldn't tease out the complexities of the portrayal, but I immediately knew that I wanted that character in my story. In Red October, the ambassador was played by a British character actor named Joss Ackland, so naturally, I named one of my characters Joss, after him. Of course, Joss was only ever supposed to be a minor hood, not the main character, but after a couple years went by and I realized the story was way too big for me, I put it away in a drawer, and when the third thread in this tapestry walked into my life, it turned out to be just the thing I needed to turn Joss Kyle into the fugitive hero of an interplanetary political thriller. But that thread will have to wait for another time. Couple last business items here. Those of you who listen to my culture podcast, The Polyschismatic Reprobates Hour, which you can find at www.reprobateshour.com, will want to check your feed next week. There's a special episode coming out with Mer Lafferty, who I interviewed last March and finally got around to editing. Turns out that Mer got a book deal on her book, Playing for Keeps. If you haven't listened to it yet, hop on over to patiobooks.com and give it a try. It's one of the best-written, most intelligent superhero books I've read or heard, and I'm not a fan of the genre. This book is really well done, with the blend of humor and tragedy that only Mighty Murr can provide. Anyway, the book is hitting Amazon on the 26th, so if you're a fan of hers, or you're into supporting podcast novelists, which I kinda hope you are, Make sure to order Playing for Keeps from Amazon.com on August 26th to help her peg the bestseller charts and perhaps swing on up to an A-list publisher. This is an author who deserves that kind of recognition, both because she's an excellent author and because she's put so much into helping all the rest of us with her I Should Be Writing podcasts and helping out with the Nano Monkeys, and the list goes on and on and on and on. As far as antithesis goes, will the senator send hunters after Jim and Allie? Has Joss finally made his escape? What stake does the mysterious Cassie Orenthal have in all of this? And what of Percy Scott, the U.S. intelligence agent we met two episodes ago in Ecuador? Find out next week. And remember, it isn't whether you win or lose. 
It's how you rig the game.